I am, uh, since birth, uh, as far as I know, I am what you would call, and some of you, you might relate, probably not many, but some of you, I am a classic oversharer. Any of you guys know what I'm talking about, or you're, maybe you're married to one? I just, from the beginning of time, have always been uh, someone that I just immediately, I don't have to know you for more than two minutes, and I will overshare. There was a time back in my 30s, and I had met this 16-year-old kid in a workplace, and he just was very kind and said, how's your day going? And I literally, I'm not kidding, I was like, oh, it's pretty good, thanks for asking, man. I am, though, uh, in therapy right now for a lifelong battle with uh, chronic depression, um, but that's going really good, so thanks for asking. And he's just literally standing there, like he's 16, the poor kid, you know, a grown man just bearing his soul to him, and he literally looks at me, and he doesn't know what to do, so he just goes, oh, okay, so uh, you wanted a Big Mac, large fries, and a Diet Coke, is that right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot why I'm here. Yeah, that's the order I want, literally. Like, I've been an overshare my whole life, and, and I know what it is. I know uh, I've psychoanalyzed myself. A lot of it is probably like a defense mechanism, right? Because here, right or wrong, here's been my theory, and you overshares, you might understand this, is I want people to make decisions about me and who I am fast and decisively. I want, amen, right? Like, I want people to know if they're in with me or not. Like, I want people to know if I can bring my fullest, truest self to them, and they're going to stick around. And if not, I don't want to be disappointed later. So I'm just going to maybe let you know some of the worst of me. I hope you see some of the best of me too, but I'm definitely going to make sure you know some of the worst of me so you can make a quick decision to see if you're in and you're going to stick around, right? And I'm an overshare. I say that to simply say this. I am uh, about to overshare a little bit. And here's how it goes. And I promise this relates to Luke chapter seven that we will be getting there. Um, Several years ago, uh, on the day that we found out my wife was pregnant with our fourth and our final kid, We didn't even make it a day before we got into an argument, and it was about this. She said, listen, my body can't do this anymore. We have four kids. I have joked with you before, said we should have had two from a stewardship point of view, right? We have four kids. She's like, my body's done. I'm over this. This is beautiful. Let's celebrate. This is a gift. But I want you to know as soon as this procedure is done, you're going to get a procedure. I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Right? And those of you, most of you probably know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I'm trying to be nice here as I overshare. It rhymes with uh, tesectomy. Um, (laughs) She's like, you're getting the procedure. And so I do what any God-fearing, godly man who's leading his home well does. I use scripture as a weapon against her. Right, I start to go back to the Garden of Eden and I talk about childbirth and what a gift it is to women. And I know it comes with some difficulty now because of sin or whatever that verse meant and all that stuff. But, you know, there's nowhere in the Greek, the Hebrew, the Latin, the Aramaic that I've ever seen the word vasectomy. And so it's not biblical. It's not God's design. Like we can't. And she's just having none of it. And she's like, you're absolutely going to do this. And so you fast forward eight months later and we get to where we're having our kid and we go to the hospital and she's she's there and she's going to have this kid. And just to rub it in my face to prove to me that I need to do this future procedure because women are way tougher than men. She doesn't even have an epidural with our last kid. Like she went all natural. And I promise, she won't admit it, but I promise you it was just to spite me. It was just to say, if I can do this, you can do that dinky little procedure. That's an outpatient procedure that takes less than an hour. You're going to be fine. All right. You're going to do this and everything in me because of the pain and the vulnerability of that procedure. I just did not want to do it. And so I, I went into this, this birth a little different than my three other kids. And so from the minute the doctor walked in, you know, he was looking at my wife doing all of whatever he does to do his job well. And then he finally looks at me and he's like, uh, Hey dad, how are you doing? 
And I immediately jump into manipulation mode because all I'm thinking of, me and my wife had made a deal that if for some reason she had had three natural births, but I'm like, babe, people get C-sections every day. The doctors are pros at this anymore. It's like they do it in their sleep. If you have to have a C-section, we are going to tell them to tie your tubes while they're there, right? She's like, absolutely. Why wouldn't we? But but I probably won't because I've had three natural so far. So you're probably having this procedure. So the doctor says, hey, dad, how you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, to be honest, doc, I'm... uh, Little word here, that kid's bigger than our other ones. That kid's looking, my wife's looking big right now. You think we'll probably C-section? We'll probably have to C-section it. It's like, no, what are you talking about? He's like, your wife looks great. Everything's checking out wonderfully. And I'm like, yeah, but we can't really know that, can we? <laughs> and he kind of looks at me like, that's literally my job to know that. Like, like, like we're going to be fine here. And I'm like, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, like, and then hours later, my wife finally goes into the final parts of labor where it's getting intense. And again, for whatever crazy reason, I don't understand it. She chose not to have the epidural. And so there are some very loud screams and breathing and moaning, as you can imagine. And I leverage those all to manipulate the situation. Every time she screamed loud at all, I'm like, it's breach. We got to breach kid. We got to get in there. We got to go in there quick. It's C-section time. You know what I'm saying? Like we got, and my wife's just looking at me. If you've been married for more than like five minutes, you know this about marriage. There's this thing called sign language. There's real sign language, the art of it. And then there's marriage sign language, right? That's you talk, you talk with body language. And she just looked at me at one point. She knew exactly what I was doing. I'm like, I could be breach. We got to go. I'll put scrubs on right now. I'll go in there with you. We're going to tie our tubes too, too while we're in there. But she just looks at me and she just is like, it's happening. Like, don't even, don't, I know what you're doing right now. In the middle of, a, like, literally, like, no, this is happening. <laughs> and so, all that said, she delivered naturally, and I went through this very painful, vulnerable procedure. I let her know almost weekly that I went through that for our family after she gave birth to four, <laughs> four kids. So, you would have thought I was like a war veteran the way I came out of there, just thinking I've done such a service to society with all the things. All that said, and I'm not going to overshare anymore, my procedure, and this procedure, they're they're masters at it. It's really simple. It's outpatient. It takes less than an hour. You follow the doctor's orders for three days. You're fine. It's no big deal. Mine went horrible. Everything went wrong. I won't tell you why because of the graphicness of the details, but everything, I'm just that. I deserved it. I brought it on myself because of the delivery room stuff. A man reaps what he sows, all right? It went horrible. But I I say all that simply because it feels good to overshare sometimes. And my wife's not here, and I just wanted to get that out, right? Like I'm tired of talking about it to my therapist. But anyways, I digress. The reason I say that is simply to set us up. I want, I want a little light heart because uh, today's going to be a little bit challenging if you let it. A little bit confrontational. Now, I pray that my spirit is gentle because that's the spirit of Jesus. Holy Spirit's gentle. But it'll be a little confrontatious because we're going to do this today in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at a text that involves this group of people, particularly one man named Simon, it involves this group of people that get talked quite a bit about in the Gospels called the Pharisees. In fact, as you're reading along this year in Luke chapter 7, you're going to see multiple times and moments where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And it's interesting, the Pharisees always get a really bad rap because it sounds like Jesus gives them a bad rap, right? Because Jesus' chief motive of love for the Pharisees, listen to me say that again, Jesus' chief motive of love and method of love that he shows the Pharisees is one we all don't like that much, but make no mistake about it, it is a high form of love. You know what he uses on them the most? This thing called rebuke. You don't associate the word rebuke with love, do you? But in Psalms 41, it says this. It says, the the psalmist wrote this beautiful prayer. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. 
Let him rebuke me. It is his oil on my head. May my head not refuse it. And that's my prayer for us today. And the reason I want to highlight in this story the Pharisees, because we got Jesus in the story. Of course, he's the ultimate highlight. He's the hero, the center of every story. But then we also have the, 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 the woman in the story that usually gets highlighted. And I've preached this text so many times before, and I always come back to the beautiful moment with the woman. But one of the things I always leave out is the implications of the guy who hosted the party we're going to read about in the first place this guy named Simon, who's a Pharisee. So in Luke chapter 7, it goes like this, and we are about to have, if you guys will be humble enough, what I call a Pharisectomy. Here we go. When one, I'm weird. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now we'll come back to that, but uh, I got some work to do in between that and the next part of the story. Because I want to talk about the Pharisees for a minute. Some of you are newer to church. You haven't had a lot of background or study on the Pharisees. All you know is it seems like Jesus really doesn't like them and they really don't like Jesus, right? But it's more complex than that. The Pharisees, uh, the rule number one, anytime you're reading a, a, a moment between Jesus and the Pharisees, because they're always highly contentious. It's full of rebuke from Jesus to them. But you have to remember this is rule number one to get the story right. Anytime you are reading anything between Jesus and the Pharisees, know this number one. Jesus deeply, deeply loves the Pharisees. He loves them. How do I know that? For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only life that whosoever, that word whosoever is big, right? Whosoever, crooks, thieves, adulterers, liars, cheats, Pharisees, whoever will put their belief in him shall have eternal life and will not perish. Jesus's harsh language with them was not done from a place of hate. It was done from a place of so much love that he had to wake them up out of their hypocritical slumber that they had found them. He had to wake them up from the oppression that their tradition that was supposed to be beautiful was now oppressing people with. The second thing you got to understand is the tradition of the Pharisees was God ordained. They were given a high call by God. When this tradition got started, it was beautiful. These were the most trusted men on planet Earth in the Jewish culture because almost everyone in the Jewish culture, number one, they didn't have access to a Torah. The most sacred writings they could have in their belief system, the Jews, they didn't have access to a Torah. Number two, majority of the people in the ancient cultures could not read. So you had these highly skilled men that were trained, theologically trained. They loved God and they loved his word, his Torah so much. They literally spent years memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Try doing that sometime. It would take years to memorize the Torah. This tradition got started off on such good footing and it was beautiful. And God was asking these great men of God to be interpreters of the scripture for people who couldn't read it themselves and people who didn't even know how to read. That is a high calling from God. And we often hear this, right? With, with, with much responsibility, with great power comes what? Great responsibility, Right? But here's what we also know about things that start really, really beautiful and turn into great traditions and have great motives and great hearts is usually because they're great and they're blessed by God. Over time, they grow, right? It gets bigger. The allure 
of the Pharisees by first century Judea. When we're about to read in Luke 7, the allure of the Pharisees was, was, they were like gods. They were like heroes. Everyone wanted their son to grow up and get asked to train to eventually become a Pharisee. That was like the biggest gift you could give any family in the Jewish culture. And because of the growth and because of the esteem over the centuries, it was like, it was, I would put it this way, it's like milk that's left out overnight. It's spoiled. Something that was so beautiful and nutritious, supposed to be nutrition to become something that was going to make you incredibly sick. This is what had happened to the pharisaical tradition by the time Jesus gets there. And Jesus, in his kindness and lovingness, lovingness is having none of it. So I want to do this. We'll go back to the story. But I just want you to understand how toxic this relationship had gotten between Jesus and the Pharisees because of the oppression that the Pharisees were now using their holy and sacred job to just hold people back and hold people down. Why? For their own greed, for their own self-indulgence, the Bible says, for their own power plays and their own manipulation, even for their own wealth. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law, and here it is, the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat. That's a big deal. That's an important thing. That's a beautiful thing. He says, so you must be careful. This is interesting what he says here. You must be careful to do everything they tell you. But then listen to the very next sentence. But do not do what they do. Isn't that weird? Do what they tell you. But do not do what they do. Here's why. For they do not practice what they preach. Here's what they do, Jesus says. They tie up heavy cumbrance and loads and put them on the other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a single finger. It had become big business for the Pharisees to create biblical problems, weaponizing, what I was jokingly saying earlier, weaponizing scripture, creating biblical purposeful problems under the guise of holiness to make life impossible for people. They didn't offer any solutions. They weren't there to do what Jesus, Jesus would always address the problems like the Pharisees did, but Jesus never left you with the problem. Jesus always came with, hey, there's good news. I got solutions. I got plans for you. I got a way out of this. I'm your source of freedom. The Pharisees just stopped at the problem because the more they kept the people down, the more the people would think that they needed to remain in power. And Jesus was having none of it. He says this in Matthew 23 too. Woe to you. That's just that word woe in the Greek. is just a pronouncement of judgment. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. He says this, you hypocrites. He loves this word when speaking with the Pharisees. That word in the Greek simply means actor. It means to translate from underneath is what it means. And what they were talking about was people who translated something from underneath a mask. So interesting. And this is, God bless you. This is why Jesus is so harsh with the Pharisees because Jesus isn't shocked by human brokenness. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. Can we agree with that? Jesus knew the mess that he was entering when he came into this world. He's not shocked by the scandals we get shocked by. He's not shocked by the dysfunction that we see this world finds itself in. He's not shocked by your big personal mistakes and failures. He had every one of your days, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of them, the Bible says, were preordained in his book before one of them came to be. God did not come down here shocked by our mess. But you know what makes Jesus, you know what makes it incredibly hard for Jesus to do his loving, saving, kind work in someone's life. It's when you choose to live life with masks on. 
Jesus can work with almost anything, but one thing that makes it very difficult for Jesus to do his best and kindest work is when you are just hiding things. This was the first temptation from the minute the apple was eaten was what? Hide stuff. Hide stuff. Cover it up. Give the appearance that everything's okay. Give the appearance that nothing's changed. Give the appearance that everything's functional. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. They're the best hiders on planet earth. He's trying to awaken their souls. Listen, he goes on to say, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices. You're that meticulous about your outward manifestations of holiness. You're mint, you're dill, you're cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Like, like here's what's more important. He says, justice. Here's a big word. Mercy. Faithfulness. He says this. You should have practiced the latter. Keep doing that, he says, is fine, but without neglecting the former. You blind guides, he says, you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. In other words, you're, you're, you're kings of majoring on the minor issues to keep everyone in bondage and feeling overloaded with the yoke you're putting on them, the pressure you're putting on them. You major on the minors and you minor on the major things. He's like, the major things isn't the given the tenth of your little, your, your, your little cumin and your mint and your spices. He said the major things are big things like faithfulness and justice and mercy. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. There it is again. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, he says, do this first. And this is a word for all of us. He says, first clean the inside. When he's talking about the cup, he's talking about our hearts. He says, clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then also the outside will be clean. He goes on in the same chapter, listen to this. Woe to you, more judgment, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, Jesus said to them, you appear as people, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Again, this isn't Jesus damning them to an eternal existence without he came that everyone might be saved. It's God's will that none should perish. This is a loving act of harsh rebuke because they have gotten to be such professionals at hiding their own stuff from everybody to maintain their illusion and to maintain their, their, their control that Jesus is going, I've got to be strong in my rhetoric with them to wake them up out of this hypocrisy. Right. So now what we do is we go back to Luke chapter seven and we see that Simon's a Pharisee who's hosting Jesus. All of a sudden, this woman crashes the party and she's usually her and Jesus who get top billing. And I'm going to focus on her for a minute because this is literally, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful moments in scripture. What this woman does with Jesus. It's, it's a picture of Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I tell you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. We see this played out here. It says this, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life, most and all scholars agree it had to be something sexual, probably prostitution, or the town wouldn't have known. She's obviously known here. She's carried a scarlet letter around. She'd lived a sinful life. The whole town knew it, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Again, most scholars will tell you it's somewhere between a half year's wages, that jar of perfume of alabaster, very expensive, or even a full year's wages. 
She shows up with a lot of, a lot of money for her. And she stood behind him at his feet, listen to this, weeping. There's no hiding here. There's no hypocrisy here. She's not trying to clean the outside of her dish that had become very dirty and soiled in the eyes of the society she grew up in. Everyone knew her story. Everyone knew her dysfunction. Everyone knew her mistakes. They were on public display. And I love that she comes in and she is the exact antithesis of what the Pharisees' hearts had fallen into. She's not trying to hide stuff. She's not trying to act. You don't come in the room and break into a circle of some of the most powerful people in Judea. The, not some of, the most powerful people in Judea. That's who would have been sitting at the table waxing eloquent about all the things with God, with Jesus. That's who that would have been. You don't break in and just start having this vulnerable moment, this awkward, crazy moment that would have shaken up the tenor of the whole room unless it's authentic and Jesus is drawn to our authenticity. Jesus is drawn to our vulnerability. Jesus is drawn to someone. He can work so tenderly and so well with people who are just willing to be brutally, sometimes gut-wrenchingly honest with ourselves. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Listen to this. She wet his feet with her tears, and then this is also beautiful. She wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, I want to talk for just a few minutes about, just a few minutes about the woman. Because this is usually what the sermon gets talked about mostly. She represents for us in this room two beautiful things and two things that are real about life. From the minute you were born until the minute you and I will breathe our last, life has this weird dynamic where we are walking daily in a whole bunch of beauty but also a whole bunch of brokenness. Is that not the truth? Someone shake your head if, I'm, if you think I'm telling the truth. Is life not more than that? Come on, like that's just the truth. I, I don't need your head shakes. It's the truth, right? Like, like this is just life and we need to talk about this more often. That's why you'll hear me while I'm here all the time, no matter what the sermon is, you'll hear me use the phrase beauty and brokenness because we have to know what to do on this side of eternity with all the beauty that's around. Like the Bible says God is everywhere all the time. If God is everywhere all the time, here's what you can know. Beauty's there to be found. Beauty doesn't go away. But here's also what I know about this pesky thing called the brokenness in our lives. And when I'm saying brokenness, I'm talking about, I'm talking about like this woman, the mistakes she's made. That, that's some brokenness. I'm talking about not just the mistakes you and I have made. What about the mistakes people have made against you that have cost you a lot? Some of her tears weren't just tears for her mistakes. I guarantee you some of those tears that she used to wash Jesus' feet were because of how many mistakes people had made in her life that cost her something. Like we all come in here with failures. We all come in here with regrets. It's part of the human story. It's part of your and I human experience. We should not be afraid to talk about it honestly. We should take our cues from this beautiful woman who walks in and says, I'm not, I'm going to come in here and put my full beauty and my full brokenness equally on display. And here's what I'm going to do with my tears, which represented the brokenness. But then what did she wipe his feet with once they got wet from her tears? Her hair. Do you know in Old Testament and New Testament alike, a woman's hair was always called her what? Her crown. And that wasn't just some nice imagery to say women are really pretty. Because y'all, women, you're, you're better looking than us dudes. You just are. Just own it. Just, just sit in it. You just are. 
But, but hair in the Jewish culture was a symbol of your realist identity. Not your identity because of your mistakes. Not your identity because of your failures. Not your identity because of your regrets. Not your identity because of your sin patterns. Your hair was God reminding you, ladies, you are royal priesthood. You are royal, ladies. And buried underneath what the, 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 the debris that sin causes in your life, you are royalty. And you're going to grow up, unfortunately, in a man's world. And God's saying, that's not what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be a human's world. And so you use that hair to remind you that for all the brokenness you may have in your life, beyond that, below that, underneath the surface of that, you have a greater identity than that. It's your hair. You are a beautiful, and it's not just talking physical beauty. You are a beautiful human being, and you have so much beauty. And men, let me say this to you. You equally come in here with so much beauty in your life. Think about your talents, men and women. Think about your skill sets. Think about some of the things you do real well that other people can't do real well. That was a gift to you from God to be used for his glory, to be, to be used at his feet. And that's the beautiful picture of what this woman does with her beauty as she says, I, I, all glory to God. This hair is, is a gift from God. And so you know what I'm going to do? Well, God happens to be on planet earth for a few years. I'm going to wet his feet with my tears. I'm going, to proudly, I'm going to proudly put my brokenness at his feet, but I'm also going to take the things beautiful about me, and I'm also going to use that for his glory. I'm going to wipe his feet with my hair. This is, again, the antithesis of the spirit of the Pharisees that would have sat in that room, Simon included. For them, it was all about outward appearances. It was all about making sure everyone thought that they were playing the part so well when Jesus knew based on their hearts they weren't playing their original design well at all. They had forsaken the beauty that God had put on the inside of them, which got them to be Pharisees in the first place. They had forgotten that their skill sets to read and to become theologians and interpreters of scripture, they had forgotten that all of that was simply a gift from God that he gave them while he was forming them together in their mother's womb. This woman hadn't forgot any of it. She's like, all my beauty is yours, Jesus. All my brokenness is yours, Jesus. Why? She was desperate at that point. I've only changed. Tell me what you think about this. I've only found that I change for two reasons in life, period. Anytime I've ever changed, one is out of desperation and one is out of inspiration. And I don't know about you, but I'll just tell you my story. For every one time I changed something in my life for the good from inspiration, there were nine times I changed from desperation. Like God can work with desperation. God can work with anyone who is just vulnerable and open enough to be honest about not just the beauty in your life, but equally honest about the brokenness. And that's why I say it's good for us once or twice a year, and the text allows it if we just keep reading it through, it, because the Pharisees get brought up so much. It's just good to stop every now and then and, and healthy as a church to just stop and go, we're going to do a pharisectomy today. Not on them anymore. Because that's the high mark of a Pharisee is, is a fixation with the sin, struggles, and brokenness of other people around you. Whether it be friends in your life, whether it be family members, whether it be culture at, as, at large, whether it be nations, whether it be other people of other things. It's so easy to get outside of the mirror and start looking at everybody else to try and find some false pseudo sense of validation for ourselves. And, and Jesus is going, look, if you want to be the freest, most peaceful, most joyful, best you, 
Spend the most time not looking out there. Spend the most time looking in the mirror. And we know that James, the pastor James in his book, calls the Bible a mirror. The word of God, the truth of God. Like, let God do his best work, not on everyone out there because of what you think. Let him do it on you. Because every time you start to get super honest and vulnerable about not just the best parts of you, which you need to do as well. Don't you, let me, let me side note for a minute, this matters. Don't you hate that your brokenness seems to have the loudest microphone in your head when there's so much beauty that you walked in here with? Don't you hate that? That, that, that judge in your head, that person in your head that's just constantly accusing you, half the time lying to you about you, and that voice gets so loud you forget to go, oh, there's so much beauty in my life. But, but we also have to have these moments where we do a, a fair sectomy. We go, I've got to be honest. I've got to give names to my brokenness. And, and I'm not saved by my awesomeness. Can we remember that today? The central fundamental of the gospel. We're not saved because of our human awesomeness. We're not saved because of our white knuckle discipline. We're not saved because we've got everything lined up in order. We are saved as a gift, free gift by Jesus Christ because of his love and kindness for you and for me. So why wouldn't we as people who are products ultimately of mercy, products of a gift, we should be the least unafraid to put our brokenness on display like this woman. We should be the people that have this beautiful, holy fear of God that says, I can't keep this to myself. And yes, I'll confess it to God. But there's also this this beautiful thing of being willing to confess it to community. God already, when you confess to God, there's something that he, the Bible says in 1 John, he cleanses you and purifies you. There's this cleansing when we confess our sins to God that's cleansing and purifying. But James then says, when you confess your sins to each other, though, it's healing. Like, This is what this woman's doing. She's coming in with all of her brokenness. She's notorious for all the wrong things. And she just starts weeping at his feet, washing them with her hair. Just this beautiful moment. And I guess this is what I'm asking. I'm I'm trying to check my, I I need to, I'm going to get you all out of here. Let's go to lunch. So, so I'll tell you this. Here's your homework. I want you to go back and I want you to read the rest of the story. Because Jesus, he's pretty kind in this one. But he tells a story to Simon about two people that owed a debt. One had a larger debt, but he forgave both of them. And then Jesus says, hey, Simon, who do you think think will love me more? And Simon's like, I guess the one that you forgave the bigger debt. And he says, you've judged correctly. And then he says, see this woman? I came to your house. You invited me. You didn't do one of the traditional things to offer me hospitality. I know your heart. I know why you had me here. You wanted to get me in some more trouble. You wanted to trap me in some of the words we'd have in our conversation. This woman, though, since the time I came in, she's, she's greeted me with kiss. She, she, wet my hair with her, she wet my feet with her tears, and she, she washed them with her, with her hair. You didn't do any for that. So I tell you, this woman, your faith has saved you. And here's why I'd give this message today. Here's my ultimate heart. He says, now you can go in peace. Peace is one of the chief spoils of the kingdom of God. And listen to me, please. You deserve peace the peace of God. I pastorally want that for you. I desperately, selfishly want the peace of God for me. And Jesus is teaching us in this moment, like a big part of the peace that you deserve to have comes from unbridled honesty that I on the cross am freeing you up from having to be afraid of. 
So that's what we do this week. That's, that's our homework. There's this, I'll end with this. There's this moment that happens multiple times, particularly in the book of Jeremiah, though, where the prophet uses some language as he's speaking about Israel, who had gotten very pharisaical at the time as a nation. And he goes, God, talking to God like he's a silversmith, because everyone would have known the silversmith trades back then. And he's talking to God, he's praying to God, and he uses this language. He goes, God, will you please give us your refiner's fire? That was silversmith terminology. And then he says this interesting thing, and I'll explain it, so stick with me. He goes, would you sweep away the dross from Israel? So let's talk about the refiner's fire, and let's talk about dross real quick. What they would do in the ancient world, and everyone would have known this. This was such a common profession. They would take the most precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, and what they would do to put them through the purifying process is they'd have this massive, this massive uh, metal tank full of boiling water with fire underneath it. And they would get whatever, let's just say it's gold, right? And the goal of putting it in the refiner's fire, this boiling hot water, was to get all of the impurities out of it so it could be the most purest and precious form of metal it could possibly be. So stick with the metaphor here, right? So they would put it in, at its first temperature. And what would come to the surface as it was in there the first time were all of these kind of off-colored bubbles would come up to the surface. And they would call this in their industry dross. They still call it that to this day. They call these bubbles dross. And what they would do is like so much would come from all the external impurities. They would sweep away the dross. This is interesting because I think this is how God works with us. They would pull the, the gold out of the fire, set it down to breathe, in regular temperature, and while it's breathing, the fire's getting turned up. Then when it's breathed long enough to not ruin it, they would pick it up, put it back in in hotter temperatures. Now here's what would happen. Less dross would come to the surface. But you ready for this? Here's what I learned. This blew my mind. The bubbles that were there were way more toxic than the first round. Way less visible, way more toxic. They would take it out, let it breathe. Praise God, he lets us breathe through the sanctification process, right? Turn up the fire to the highest they could get it, however they did that back then. Take the gold, put it in for one more round. And when I was learning about this, they said, next to hardly any bubbles would come to the surface. But the bubbles that did show up, although there were very little visible bubbles, were so toxic that if you even touched it and put it to the tongue, you could possibly die. The deepest, last impurities to go were ironically the least visible, but the most deadly. This is what was happening with the Pharisees. You could hardly, everyone thought these guys hung the moon. Everyone thought these guys were the ultimate standard and way to live. And Jesus just comes along and lovingly says, "Uh uh-uh. You heard the language he used. He didn't use that language with prostitutes. He didn't use that language with tax collectors. He didn't use that language with a bunch of people who had these big, old, boisterous, outward sins that the whole city knew about and judged them for. But then he gets to the heroes of the city and he says, my rhetoric's got to get stronger with you because you're believing a lie. You're putting masks on. You're, you're hypocrites. You're acting one way and completely your hearts are completely detached from me. So I'm going I'm to pronounce judgment on you, not to kill you or destroy you, but to wake you up. And, and this is why I love having these talks, even though they're not the funnest. We'll talk about like nice, like clouds and fun things next week. But listen, to, this is why this is so important 
is, is because the Bible says that judgment starts with the house of God. Not culture. Not the world. And I'm not saying there's never a time to critique what's happening out there. But man, as I get older, can, can we be honest for a minute? As I get older, I got so much dross buried deep on the inside of me, Chad Brugman. I don't have a lot of time from a stewardship perspective to be freaking about, out about how everything else is going and everyone else is doing. I think the best way I can make this world a little bit better of a place is to make my heart a little bit better of a place. That's why Jesus said, man, clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside. Focus, do the hard work. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Yeah, here's the deal. Here's what you're going to be afraid of. People are going to judge you when you're open and honest. People are going to judge you when, you, when, when you're in a community where you fill the green light to let it all bear out. But here's, here's who will pay for your judgment and instead give you the gift of mercy if you will just lay it at his feet. Jesus. Jesus. So don't fear man. And I'm preaching myself, guys. I, I have a resident fear of other people's thoughts, ideas. and I want everyone to like Chad Brugman. Can I, can I be honest? Can I, can I lay some things at his feet in front of you guys right now? Can I overshare? Don't get me started on overshare and I'll do it. You know, I love it. It's my happy place. I, I started doing the, the ferrisectomy homework that I would like all of us to walk out to do today, to be the healthiest possible church we can be. I looked a lot in the mirror this week. I didn't feel condemned. I didn't hate myself because I know the gospel. I know that I'm not saved because Jesus thinks I'm superhuman and awesome and special and he needs me. I'm saved because he is madly in love with me so much that he would go to the point of death, death on a cross for some knucklehead named Chad Brugman who's still got a lot of impurity on the deepest part. Here's the truth about me right now. If you Google my name, as far as I know, there's no scandals there. No outward scandals that you guys would be ashamed about or embarrassed about. But there is still scandal on the inside of my heart. You understand that? I still struggle with envy, greed. I still struggle with jealousy. I mean, if you knew some of the thoughts I've just had in the last week, it would be scandalous. But like the Pharisees, Unless I'm open, unless I'm honest, unless I have, and I normally, I'm not saying let's all have a, I, I normally, I'm just doing this to set an example. But listen to me, we've got to have some people in our life where we can, we can, we can be honest with. Like you got to have that. Got to get real. And there's peace. That's the final outcome that comes with that. Just Jesus, it's all at your feet. So this week, I end with this. I really do. You go, Chad, you say that every time and you don't end. I'm ending with this right here. What, what if this week, for real, what if this week you just did two things? Unafraid, unencumbered, and you know that it's all, Jesus, here's what I'm laying at your feet this week. I'm gonna take a little time to look at the dross that's left in my heart. Those places that, unless I'm honest about it, no one will ever know. I've done this Jesus thing long enough. I don't have any public, I don't think most of you in here have public scandals right now. I don't think most of you in here have done stuff so bad that the public's just, just destroying you for it. Maybe a few of you, yeah, but, but look at Jesus' treatment of this lady. All he asked from her was, was vulnerability and honesty, repentance, confession. 
What if we do that this week? Jesus, start. Not, I'm not thinking about culture for a week. I'm not thinking about what's wrong with the world for a week. I'm not going to write any posts about what everyone else is doing wrong or what I can't stand this week. I'm looking at the person in the mirror this week because I want to walk out with peace that you gave this woman when she got real and honest. Not about the people around her, but her herself. And then secondly, please do this. Do not forget to do this. You have the right to do this. Stop and remind yourself of everything about you that's beautiful. And do it with confidence because your author is the one who gave you those gifts. You're not bragging on you. You go, well, I'll be cocky and I don't want to get... You're bragging on your, on, on your designer. Look at it from that point of view. I'm about to brag on my designer for a while. And so I'm going to write out and list the things about me that I just know are beautiful. And God knows it and I know it because he gave me that beauty. And nobody's going to take it from me, not even my own brokenness. And you spend time this week just thinking about all the things in life that are beautiful. Because here's what it does. It's, It's sweet. It stirs up this thing called wonder. And come on, those of you like me, I've been, some of you have been doing this Jesus thing a lot longer than me. I'm about almost three decades in. You can, one of the things that's first to go is the wonder, right? And just doing these things start to stir it up again and again. So I have more than said my piece. This is a tougher talk and you guys have completely leaned in. I can see it in your faces. It's quiet in here, but I'm okay with quiet. My ultimate motive, and I pray us out with this, is I just want you to have the peace that this woman was blessed by Jesus to have. Your faith has saved you. The final verse says, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith this brought, brought this beauty and brokenness. It saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus, I pray that right now over every single person in this room. I pray the peace of God would be on them. Lord, that you would bless everyone, that you'd keep them in the grip of your grace, that you'd cause your face to shine upon us, that you'd be gracious to us, that you'd turn your countenance towards us. And again, God, we would walk out of these doors with the peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Blessings upon blessings, God, for these people until we meet again next week. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, I love you guys so much. Love you guys. Have a great day.